BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Who was Howard van der Beek and what happened to him on the night before D-Day? Well, it turns out that his quick thinking saved the lives of no fewer than 21,000 men. Welcome to Season 3 of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about a young American captain who was destined to play a vital role in the beach landings of the 6th of June, 1944. D-Day was the biggest seaborne invasion in the history of warfare. Five massive fleets, one for each of the five invasion beaches. Force U for Utah Beach, Force O for Omaha, Force J for Juno, Force G for Gold, and Force S for Sword. Each of these armadas had to be led by someone capable. It was a unique responsibility. One mistake and the entire fleet could be led into one of the many minefields that had been laid all along the French coast. At the front of Force U, destined for Utah Beach, was Howard van der Beek, a strong-jawed, white-toothed 27-year-old from Oskaloosa in Iowa. His wave of blonde hair and sharply knotted tie lent an Ivy League preppiness to his nautical dress. At least, it did when he was on dry land but he'd now been at sea for many hours and his hair was sluiced with salt and his necktie was sodden and listing. His job was to sail in the vanguard of Force U, a fleet that consisted of 865 vessels, including battleships, destroyers and frigates. They'd sailed from their anchorages spread throughout the United Kingdom and Ireland at Belfast, Plymouth, Torbay, Weymouth and Dartmouth, and then grouped together in the English Channel. Vanderbeek's responsibility was onerous for someone so young, yet his position at the vanguard of this armada was just one of his duties. Once the fleet had arrived at its anchorage off Utah Beach, he had to guide the hundreds of little landing craft to the shore, leading them to the exact spot where the men would begin their invasion. One slip, one mistake, and disaster could ensue. For if the men were landed at the wrong place, the long months of training would have all been in vain. Such an important mission required a special ship, and van der Beek's craft, LCC-60, was exactly that. She was a control vessel, powered by two 255-horsepower engines that enabled her to cruise at 14 knots. Just 56 feet long and little wider than a London bus, her below-deck space was crammed with weaponry and nautical equipment. The role entrusted to van der Beek and his men was so important that it had been kept under wraps. This secrecy had engendered a close camaraderie among the crew. Solid kinship was how van der Beek saw it. He and his men shared opinions in the same way as they shared their food. And now, as the channel gale flung raw salt spray into their eyes, they were all sharing the same thought. 
that this was the worst possible night for launching the largest seaborne invasion in history. The weather was not the only reason for their anxiety. Something unsettling had happened a week earlier, something so alarming that it was still preying on their minds. It had taken place one evening when they tuned into Axis Sally, an American broadcaster producing propaganda for the Nazis. There'll be more on her a little later in this episode's D-Day snippet, so keep listening. Axis Sally was popular with the crew, even though a traitor to her country, because she played the latest American hits. But on this particular evening, the music was to strike a discordant note. She just played As Time Goes By when, to van der Beek's astonishment, she addressed him and his men directly. Tonight I want to talk seriously with Sims Gautier and Howard van der Beek and their crew over in Plymouth. The men could scarcely believe their ears. You are sitting there thinking that you will soon be on an invasion of this mighty continent, she said. Your stupid leaders are making plans to force you to sacrifice your lives to do it. This is a huge fortress, and if you come near it, all of you will die violent deaths. She suggested it would be better for them to go back to their loved ones in the United States while you still can. Axis Sally's comments left the men with a deep sense of disquiet. Not only did she know their names, but she also knew all about their secret vessel. She described the boat, outlined its function, and even discussed the men's recent activities, down to the scraping and painting the crewmen had done that very Saturday afternoon. They listened in frozen silence, mystified as to how she could know such things. They got their answer soon afterwards. Two of the crew recalled chatting to a friendly old British couple while they'd been scraping down the hull. The couple had heaped praise on the Americans and then asked a number of detailed questions. Seduced by the couple's smiles, the men had been happy to provide answers. It was clear that Axis Sally could only have received her information from this seemingly benign pair of pensioners. Van der Beek realised that they'd been able to garner all they wanted to know about us in order to transmit it by wireless for Sally's use that evening. Well-trained and cleverly disguised, they had been Nazi spies. He never discovered whether or not the authorities arrested the couple. Even if they had, the damage had been done. The element of surprise, so crucial to the invasion, seemed to have been lost. Howard van der Beek's Force U had been the first of the five fleets to set sail from England, for the simple reason that Utah Beach was significantly further than the other beaches. D-Day had originally been scheduled for the 5th of June, which meant that they'd set sail on the night of the 3rd. But there was a problem, as Howard van der Beek knew all too well. The weather in the English Channel was terrible. The wind was blowing a gale and the sea was, as van der Beek put it, abusively choppy. It was most definitely not the weather to launch the greatest invasion in history. He was not alone in thinking that the invasion was doomed to fail in such weather. Following closely behind his control craft was USS Corrie, a big gun destroyer with a top speed of almost 40 knots. She formed part of the mighty Armada Force U that was heading for Utah Beach. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and 
producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good morning. Baby, it's a brand new day. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit mcl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. USS Corrie was well-equipped to deal with anything the German shore batteries might hurl at her. Yet an atmosphere of collective doubt had pervaded the vessel ever since she left harbour. The storm in the channel had only added to their woes. Gone was the laughter and devil-may-care attitude of the previous days. Gone were the jokes and the sense of unreality felt by many who took part in D-Day. To those on board the USS Corrie, it felt as if there was a dark spell hanging over the ship. When the vessel's radio operator, Benny Glisson, had descended into the mess hall for his dinner that evening, he found it as silent as a tomb. He turned to his shipmates and attempted to lighten the atmosphere. You guys act like you're eating your last meal. No one laughed, nor even looked up, so he ate his turkey dinner in silence. The usual banter had been replaced by an all-pervading gloom that was comparative to a funeral crossing. The loss of morale had taken hold on the previous evening when the ship's captain, Lieutenant Commander George Hoffman, gathered the crew on deck for a pre-sailing pep talk. Instead of lifting their spirits with a rousing call to arms, he warned of the terrible dangers that lay ahead and concluded by saying that each and every one of them was expendable. It was an unfortunate choice of vocabulary. One of Benny Glisson's fellow radio operators, Lloyd Red Brantley, felt the optimism vanish in a flash. People were kind of in shock. Despite the gloom, USS Corrie ploughed on through the night, one of the 865 ships of Force U. It was stifling in the bowels of the ship, and the only noise was the throaty hum of the engines. There'd been radio silence for hours, as all the ships were maintaining a blackout. But shortly before dawn, all of a sudden, three digits flashed over the system. Lloyd Brantley, the radio operator, looked at his code sheet and blinked in astonishment. Oh my God! He immediately showed the message to his fellow radio man, Mort Rubin. Jesus Christ, said Rubin. The message informed them that D-Day had been postponed. The weather was too bad. Troops could not be landed in such conditions and the Air Force was unable to fly. The entire fleet was told to turn in its tracks and head back to England. Rubin was sceptical. Could this be a fake message sent by the Germans, he wondered. If so, it was certainly a beauty. Even if it was genuine, it was every captain's nightmare. But there was also the real possibility that some of the ships wouldn't receive it, and Rubin had visions of a lone destroyer or a minesweeper going in on its own private war and tipping a hand to the Germans. It was imperative to inform the rest of the fleet. Still in the vanguard was Howard van der Beek's LCC-60, which had been quick to pick up the coded post-Mike-1 postponement message. 
Within seconds of confirming its veracity, the craft swung back towards England in the hope that the hundreds of other vessels would follow suit. In such choppy seas, this was a procedure fraught with complications. Many vessels were towing tugs, entailing seamanship of a high order. One false manoeuvre could easily result in tow lines getting fouled around the screws. But as the weakest of dawns began to lick away the darkness, the mighty Force U performed perhaps the greatest U-turn in history, wheeling through a gigantic semicircle and heading slowly back to England. There was bitter disappointment aboard the LCC-60. Howard Vanderbeek's men were exhausted, saltwater-soaked and hungry. For more than 18 hours, they'd been pitched up crests and lurched into troughs as if they were riding some sort of liquid bucking bronco. Now they were heading back to England and had no idea when they would next be sailing. In the event, they didn't have to wait long. Within a few hours, they would be putting to sea once again. And this time, D-Day was definitely on. This week's Unknown History Snippet takes up the story of the mysterious Axis Sally, who I mentioned earlier. Who was she? What did she do? And how did an American woman come to be broadcasting Nazi propaganda to her homeland? Axis Sally was, in fact, not one person, but several, the generic name for traitors who broadcast for the Nazis. One of these broadcasters was Mildred Gillers, who'd moved to Germany in the 1930s and got work with the state broadcaster. She refused to listen to calls from the US State Department for German nationals to return home, largely because she was hoping to marry her German lover. Her early broadcasts were not political, but this soon changed when she was given her own programme, Home Sweet Home. She did her best to exploit the fears of American soldiers and make them feel anxious about their mission, their president and the entire policy of war against Hitler. Soldiers disliked her rants, but they loved her choice of American music, which is why they tuned into her programme. She was known by any number of names, including the Berlin Bitch, Berlin Babe, Olga and Sally. But the most common one was Axis Sally. The name probably came from Mildred Gilders herself. When asked on air to describe herself, she said she was the Irish type, a real Sally. Her most notorious broadcast came on the eve of D-Day, when she played the part of an Ohio mother called Evelyn in a play called Vision of Invasion. The mother dreams that her son has died a horrific death on a ship in the English Channel. It was a particularly vicious piece of Nazi propaganda. Mildred Gillers was captured and indicted in the autumn of 1948. She was charged with 10 counts of treason. She was eventually convicted of one of these charges, the broadcasting of that play, Vision of Invasion. She remained in prison until her release in 1961 and lived until 1988, a sad and lonely figure who was to be remembered as the traitor who worked for the Nazis. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be meeting Dennis Edwards and his band of elite comrades who were tasked with one of the most daring operations to take place on D-Day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.